today is Palm Sunday. And I had someone during the week say to me that they had no idea what Palm Sunday was all about. And I thought, gosh, yeah, actually, I often haven't really understood what today was all about, this first day of Holy Week. Um, uh, and so I just want to share a bit of this morning, a bit of the context around that. Um, last year, late last year, I took Nathan and Sam to see Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie. Um, and we thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Right through the movie, there was all these different villains that appeared uh, that were in previous Spider-Man movies or different Spider-Man universes. And um, cool movie. We really enjoyed it. But, you know, I hadn't watched a Spider-Man movie for probably 15 or 20 years, uh, apart from the most recent ones. And uh, so there was, I didn't know who these villains were or I had like a really vague memory of them. Um, so over the past few weeks, we've been watching all of those Spider-Man movies and we now have kind of the history, the context of, of each of these villains and, and where they fit into the story. Uh, and so this week we are planning on watching uh, the movie, the new movie again. Um, we get to just hire it on Apple TV far out when I was my boy's age. I remember the anxiety of going to the movie store uh, and, and hoping that, you know, uh, the VHS, the movie you want to see, that behind it would be another VHS tape um, for you to hire in that disappointment and then trying to figure out what else to watch because the movie you so badly want to see is just not there. Um, but anyway, we're really looking forward to this week watching uh, the new movie again and um, being able to watch it, understanding sort of the nuances and the context uh, of the story. And I feel like that reading these gospel passages around Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus, is a little bit the same. Uh, that there is some context, there's some nuances, there's some echoes in history that we don't catch uh, now that we're 2,000 years removed um, from, from the story. Um, so as I said before, Palm Sunday is the first Sunday of Holy Week. It's the start of the pilgrimage towards the foot of the cross. Um, so with that, we're going to now have Peter uh, read a passage from Luke 19. Reading from Luke 19, starting at verse 28. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage and Bethany, near the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it to here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were putting their coats on the road. As soon as they, he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Thanks for that, Peter. So N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, he calls it a perfect storm. You know, Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry of Jesus, 
This was a collision between Rome and Israel and God. Um, so my goal this morning is just to bring some light and some context around all of this. We might appreciate it with a new lens. Um, that we might enter this holy week with just a sense that this is a much bigger and older story than we ever could have imagined. Um, so we're going to start with Rome this morning, just to give you a bit of background. Um, in 63 AD, the general Pompey, Roman general Pompey, he took Jerusalem. Um, in the excellent book Dominion by Tom Holland, he said, A violent shattering of masonry, the collapse of an entire tower, and the great rent was left in the line of fortifications. As the dust cleared, so legionnaires were already piling into the gap. Officers, eager to secure the glory of the feet for themselves, led their men over mounds of rubble, scrambling up through the breach. Eagles, the battle standard of the Roman army, bobbed over the fray. The defenders, whose obduracy uh, and courage had been powerless in the final reckoning, to stop the advance of Pompey's battering rams, they knew themselves doomed. Many chose to torch their own homes rather than leave them to be looted by their conquerors, others to hurl themselves off the battlements. Some 12,000 in all, when the work of killing was finally done, lay littered as corpses across the city. Roman casualties, though, were very light. You know, this event was just in, in recent history, uh, not that long before Jesus really um, and you know, so for the great festivals, Pilate, who was the current governor, he would come into Jerusalem via the West Gate. You know, he'd be on his military horse, he'd have an armed escort. He came in all of his imperial glory to remind the pilgrims who had come into Jerusalem for the festival who was in charge. And that was Rome. Um, in their book, The Last Week, Borg and Cross and Wright, a visual panoply of imperial power Cavalry on horses, good soldiers, leather armour, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glittering on metal and gold. Sounds the marching feet, the creaking of leather, the clanking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers, some curious, some awed, some resentful. You know, they go on to say... Pilate's possession displayed not only imperial power, but also Roman imperial theology. The emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. Um, so it's worth noting that Julius Caesar was deified as a god, uh, and therefore his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, uh, claimed that he was the son of God. Um, and then that went on then to his son Tiberius, who was em emperor when Jesus was crucified. These were sons of God. But the Jews, however, they did not believe that a man might become a God. They believed that there was only one Almighty. So here we have on Palm Sunday a clash of theologies. And then we have Israel. Israel, who are God's chosen people, called to reveal God's glory to the nations. However, due to her faithful, faithlessness, Israel had been exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and stripped of everything around 600 years before Jesus. Generations later, they were able to return home, rebuild Jerusalem and her temple. Only God didn't return to this temple. There were expectations for a new Davidic king free to, to free Israel from Roman oppression, to set up a new regime of justice and peace. And the prophet spoke of the future where Israel would be restored. 
You might be familiar with Jeremiah 33. It says, I'll heal my people and I'll let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I'll bring Judah and Israel back from ca captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I'll cleanse them from all sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then the city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honour before all nations on earth that hear the good things that I do for it. And they'll be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. And it goes on to say, uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I'll make a righteous branch spout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is by the name it will be called, Our Lord, Our Righteous Saviour. And then in Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O peace, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I'll remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I'll destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to all the nations. Those are some big prophecies. Um, after the Assyrian exile and after the Babylonian exile, the, there was some relief that the Persian Empire let uh, some of the Jewish people return home uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild her walls, to, to rebuild the temple. Um, the Persian Empire was then followed by the Greek Empire, you know, Alexander the Great. Uh, that empire ended shortly after his death. Uh, and so the Jewish nation it, it was caught between the two uh, warring empires of then Egypt and Syria. Um, and, you know, they were, so the Jewish people, they were home, but you know, God hadn't returned to the temple. Lots of Jewish people lived in, in other countries and other places, um, and they were still waiting for God's restoration ultimately for them as a country, as a, as a nation. Uh, so around 160 years before Jesus, you know, stuck between these warring empires, there was an uprising. Um, if you've ever picked up a Catholic Bible, you'll see that there is a book called Maccabees, or two books called the Maccabees. Uh, so there was uh, a Syrian king, um, Antiochus, uh, and he banned, he banned the burning of sacrifices, Sabbath, banned the reading of the law. Um, he invaded Jerusalem and he set up a brothel in the temple courts. He sacrificed pigs as burnt offerings, pork. Um, he desacralized the Holy of Holies in the temple, which was a space that was so sacred that it was said that the Jewish priests, that they would tie a rope around their middle so when they went into the Holy of Holies, uh, if they died there, if God struck them dead, that they would be able to be dragged out by that rope. Um, you know, Antiochus, he wasn't struck dead for this desacralization, which probably was a little bit confusing for those watching. Uh, and neither was Pompey, that general we heard about at the start. He uh, also just, you know, wandered into the Holy of Holies as he was um, just desecrating Jerusalem. And yet God did not seem to strike either of them down. Um, Antiochus, he even dedicated the temple. You know, it's God's dwelling on earth. He dedicated it to Zeus. So there was tension and there was unrest and it had been brewing for some time. Judas Maccabeus was clever, a military leader, and he led this guerrilla fight. Um, and there was hope as he tore down the pagan altars, cleansed the temple, and chose blameless priests to offer sacrificial offerings. 
Um, and it's still even remembered today, although this event was before Jesus, it's remembered today in the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Um, you know, uprisings against the empire were remembered and were celebrated amongst the Jewish community. Um, and Luke's story of the triumphal entry that Peter read to us earlier, we hear that the people call out, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. In Mark's gospel, he adds a familiar word, Hosanna. And they're referencing Psalm 118. Um, and it says in Psalm 118, um, I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The Lord is doing, this is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, save us. Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Richard Clifford notes that this was a patriotic hymn. It was sung in the temple on certain holy days when the king was present in ages past. The message was that they were surrounded by enemies, but God would spare them from wrath. The song was appropriate for Passover and appropriate for Hanukkah. So it would have been well familiar this is a song of Exodus. You know, people are calling out this psalm as Jesus enters the city. Uh, when a king would enter the city, really, it was the priest that would announce him. So to not announce the king's arrival in some ways was treason. Uh, here we have it as the people who are announcing this arrival of Jesus. And they come out to meet Jesus and they're singing an ancient song of defiance, which is absolutely loaded with memory and meaning. David Steinmetz wrote, the exuberant crowds are chanting the right psalm even though they're drawing the wrong conclusions from it. Palm Sunday is about a real battle and a real victory. The enemies are real too, though they are not the enemies the psalmist originally had in mind. Psalm 118 celebrates a victory which God wins, a victory which never lies in human hands, which can be turned aside by no human power. The time was ripe for revolution. There was an anticipation for something world-changing. Instead, it was a parade of misfits. There was a mismatch between Israel's oversized expectations and God's apparent small answer. And here was Jesus. He came in via the north gate, not the west gate that the Romans came in with their great display of power. Not on a horse, but on a donkey. He came as a shepherd, not as a militarized Davidic Messiah. Jesus came for his sheep. The triumphal entry was more of a subversive act than a praise party, more of a protest than a parade. This is an anti-imperial demonstration. And compared to the pomp and circumstance of Pilate's entry, Jesus' ragtag outfit must have looked a bit bizarre. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was announcing a new kingdom, a kingdom that was unlike the oppressive and violent empire that was entering the gate on the opposite side of the city. There are some theologians that believe that might have been happening on the same day. Jesus coming in the north gate and Pilate coming in the west gate. Palm Sunday is about the announcement and inauguration of Jesus' subversive kingdom. Instead of a kingdom that is all about the proud, the powerful, the warlike, the controlling, the, you know, it's characterized by Rome and by Herod, Jesus proclaims a kingdom that is humble, subversive, sacrificial, and peaceful. 
You know, Mark 10 in the chapter before his record of the triumphal entry, Jesus tells his disciples what the kingdom will be like. Be upside down. Servants, not leaders. And that Jesus gives his life for ransom. NT wrote, This is God's moment, declares Jesus, and you are looking the other way. Your dreams of national liberation leading you into head-on confrontation with Rome were not God's dreams. God called Israel so that through Israel he might redeem the world. But Israel itself needs redeeming as well. Hence God comes to Israel riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's promise of coming, the coming peaceful kingdom. Announcing judgment on the system and the city that have turned their vocation and upon themselves and going off to take the weight of the world's evil and hostility onto himself so that by dying under them he might exhaust their power. So what does that mean for us today on Palm Sunday, the beginning of this holy week? Everyone got it wrong. They <laughs> were looking for something else when Jesus came in on that donkey. I think it's an opportunity for us to hit pause and, and think about what it is that we're expecting of Jesus. What agendas are we putting on him? What sort of king do we want him to be for our benefit? been thinking about this a little bit lately you know, wondering who's got it right, who's got it wrong. Maybe we've all got it wrong. Um, you might have heard it too in recent times. I've heard it said that, you know, Jesus touched lepers. Uh, and then I've also heard people say, yeah, but, but Jesus would protect the vulnerable. And I wonder if we've been looking for a king that would back up our own beliefs and agendas, uh, that we misuse and abuse his name uh, to win arguments even. At the start of Passion Week, you know, as Jesus entered the city, many were shouting praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. And at the end of Passion Week, as Jesus hung, tortured, exposed on that cross, a cross that is reserved uh, for revolutionaries, for rebels, for, for zealots, uh, you know, reserved to, to make a spectacle of them that others may not follow his supporters had all gone to ground. Nearly all of them had disappeared. You know, when Jesus isn't who I want him to be, do I withdraw my allegiance like they did on Passion Week? And so I encourage us to sit with this. Are we creating Jesus in our image? Are we using his name for our own ends and purposes? Even throwing out who he is in scripture just to further our own agenda. Philip Yancey reminds us, he is a king who wants not subservience, but love. Thus, rather than mowing down Jerusalem, Rome, and every other worldly power, he chose the slow, hard way of incarnation, love, and death, a conquest from within. I just want to end with uh, Philippians 2 from the passion, uh, message translation. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, do me a favour. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others to get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling, humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honoured him far above anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honour of God the Father. Let's just pray. Father, I just pray that as we ponder and consider Palm Sunday and all its fullness and uh, all of the tensions that were underlying this story that uh, we would consider perhaps where we fit in the story. Are we happy to use the name of Jesus and to praise the name of Jesus when it suits us? Uh, or are we in it regardless of what it means for me? Uh, Father, I pray that you would just this week, you would expose our hearts, that um, we know that you know, but I pray that you would expose it to us areas where we may be Jesus, um, using you for our own agendas. I pray that you would open our eyes to what you are doing around us, God, uh, even if that might be different to what we are hoping and expecting you to do. And Jesus, we thank you that uh, you were humble, that you were as a slave, uh, that you were incarnated uh, to rescue us, that we might have relationship with you and to know you. And I just pray this week as we lead into uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday that you would just still ask that we may just ponder upon who you are, Jesus, that we may be able to be grateful for you. Just pray, Father, that you just bless everyone. Amen.